2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 1. I wish that you would bear with me in a little foolishness, but indeed you are bearing with me. For I am jealous for you with a godly jealousy, for I betrothed you to one husband, so that to Christ I might present you as a pure virgin. But I am afraid that, as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, your minds will be led astray from the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. For if one comes and preaches another Jesus, whom we have not preached, or you receive a different spirit which you have not received, or a different gospel which you have not accepted, you bear this beautifully. It was originally written in a personal letter from one Lord Acton to Bishop Mandel Crichton in 1887. It it remains remarkable to me how certain phrases and sayings that we have started out just a personal letter. And we're not even published for the public. This is one of them. He wrote, power tends to corrupt and absolute power corrupts. Absolutely. He continued and said, great men are almost always bad men, which should make you feel better about the whole presidency this year. <laughs> I read that quote again this week, and I, and I realized Wednesday night we began in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, and we're talking a lot about authority, godly authority, and the authority that Paul had as a, as a missionary, as an evangelist, as a planter of churches, and as a representative of the Lord. But in looking at authority, I recognize authority is a difficult thing to manage. It truly is. Be it in a church, be it in an organization, be it in government, it doesn't really matter. Authority is tough to manage. And few of us manage it well. None of us manage it with with pure uh, integrity and perfection. In fact, the old preacher in Ecclesiastes chapter 8, verse 8 said, No man has authority to restrain the wind with the wind, or authority over the day of death. There is no discharge of authority in the time of war, and evil will not deliver those who practice it. All this I have seen and applied to my mind to every deed that has been done under the sun, wherein a man has exercised authority over another man to his hurt. And so often authority does that. It's happened here. I know that. There is imperfect authority even in our church fellowship. So what is it that makes authority work? What is it that makes it healthy and good and solid and trustworthy? And I come down to really the only thing I can think of, and that is love. That authority that comes from a place of love is good authority. Like, for example... Parental authority. Parental authority is a good authority. The love of a father for a daughter. What about the love of a father for a son? Oh, that's love as well. But the love of a father for a daughter is a unique relationship. I already understand this. I love all my sons and daughters equally and yet not the same. There is a certain, I don't know, call it protective authority that I have for my daughters, which is different than for my sons. And in that authority, I think that's why handing off my eldest daughter, Hannah, to the hand of Josiah was not easy. 
And in fact, in my life and in Cheryl's, it was a very significant moment as parents. I kid around a lot about Josiah, that bum who stole my daughter, you know. Uh, And it's fun to do, but you need to hear this from me straight up. I entrusted him with my little girl. And in so doing, I could not have asked for a better son-in-law. I could not have asked for a better man to hand Hannah over to. Now, I understand that sounds a bit patriarchal for 2016, for our society. And my response to that is tough. Because right is right. And fathers, listen up. You have a responsibility to your daughters. And I think as men, we need to be willing to be a little more patriarchal, perhaps, in the love we have for our daughters. Talking about authority, parental authority that is appropriate and right and correct and is permeated by love. I have the same feelings for Anna Marie and for Naomi. Naomi already knows that dating begins at 35. (laughs) But I care for them in a tender way, even different than David, and David's my youngest. Again, I love them all the same, but my daughters, my daughters. And even here in late 2016, there remains parental authority divinely given. But I'm not just talking to parents of biological children this morning. In fact, you don't have to have children at all to exercise parental love. As far as we know, Paul didn't have any biological children. But man, he had lots of daughters. Lots of daughter churches who he felt a father love for. In fact, as we get into now 2 Corinthians 11 and trail on into the end chapters of this letter, we hear the heart of the Apostle, which is a heart of father love. We already heard it in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 15. He said, if you were to have countless tutors in Christ, yet you would not have many fathers. For in Christ Jesus, I became your father through the gospel. Oh, not a replacement of God the Father. In fact, for Paul, it's not even father as a title. It's father as a heart. Paul had a father heart for all of the churches, for all of the people that he brought to the Lord. We hear it again in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 14. He says, Here for this third time, I am ready to come to you, but I will not be a burden to you. I do not seek what is yours, but you. See, that's apparent. I don't seek what's yours. I seek you. It's you I'm concerned about. It's you I love. It's you I have concern for. Children are not responsible to save up for their parents, but parents for their children, Paul says. And that is a right order of things. That the parents have the responsibility to the kids to care for them and to look after them. And so Paul has that. A father love for Corinth, whom he calls, I love this, his virgin daughter. Really? I wouldn't have called Corinth a virgin daughter, especially reading through 1 Corinthians, recognizing some of the immoralities and some of the struggles and and difficulties and contentions that Corinth had with Paul. And we've talked about so many of those. To call them his virgin daughter, and yet that is the extent of Paul's love. He is the father of the bride. Father of the bride. Look at verse 1. He says, I wish that you would bear with me in a little foolishness, but indeed, you are bearing with me. What's he saying? What teenage girl has not rolled her eyes at dad? You know, putting up with his ridiculous overprotectiveness. 
I'll drive you to work today. Ah, oh, Daddy, I can drive myself. I, I took it as a badge of honor if I could get Hannah to roll her eyes at me. <laughs> Especially with bad puns. That was really fun. But Honor Maria and Naomi, even Naomi now at 11 years old, begins to roll her eyes from time to time. I see it. I'm aware of it. Her head can be turned the other way, and I see it in the back of her head. <laughs> eyes rolling back. <sighs> And Paul says, that's what's going on, Corinth. I know, you're rolling your eyes at me. You're putting up with me. Paul's describing this this daughter who, yeah, she knows that he brought her to Jesus. She, the, the bride of the church there, understands that he brought the gospel first. But that's Paul. Here comes another letter from Paul. Oh, brother. And so Paul begins what has been called the fool's speech. It really picks up steam. The, the full speech proper begins about verse 21 down in the chapter, and we'll get to it Wednesday night. But it runs through chapter 12, verse 13. The fool's speech, where Paul says, I am talking like a fool here. I am going to boast foolishly. I'm going to share some just foolish thoughts. I'm going to come across the fool, the fool's speech. But I love how he introduces it here in these early verses. He does so by calling out a passive-aggressive daughter who's rolling her eyes, dissing dear old dad. He says right up front, I know what you're doing, Corinth. I get it. And then wisely, Paul goes straight to the heart. Verse 2, he says, For I am jealous for you with a godly jealousy. For I betrothed you to one husband, so that to Christ I might present you as a pure virgin. Father love of Paul. His daughter, Corinth, betrothed by the Father to Jesus. And Paul now takes up this picture of betrothal. We're going to sit in this just for a few minutes. Paul stands in this loving position of a father, pledging his daughter to the perfect husband. Absolutely Mr. Right. And as such, he not only pledges her in marriage, but he, listen, he pledges himself to protect her purity. That's why he doesn't let these things go. Because Paul says, I have a responsibility here. That was a daughter's father's highest responsibility. Was to protect the purity of his daughter. To hand her over to a husband as a pure virgin. Now note this, he says, I betrothed you. King James, I believe, says, I espoused you. Same word, same concept, same idea, and we don't do it in Western culture. In fact, we completely misunderstand the whole betrothal idea. I think it's a beautiful idea, but it's a foreign concept to us that we don't use. Back up. Marriage in Judaism and in Eastern culture especially was a three-part process that we are not about today. Part one happened in the pledge. The pledge. A father would pledge a daughter to who would become ultimately his son-in-law. An arranged marriage. Having one daughter now married and two still in the house, I can tell you, I love the idea. In fact, if some of you guys want to talk to me about your sons, we can, we can get some of this business taken care of right now. Arranged marriages. Well, how do, they, how do you know they fall in love? Oh, they will. That's all fine. In fact, you know what's interesting in the arranged marriages of, of, of past times and in arranged marriages even in the world today, they tend to last better than marriage by choice. Interesting. I think that's because, side note, love is a choice. 
Love is a decision we make, it's not a feeling that we have. But arranged marriages, it began with the pledge, and dad could make the pledge at any age of his daughter. She could be in kindergarten, and he could say, I think that boy's Mr. Wright. Shake on it, make an agreement with the other father, and the deed was done. They were going to be married at some point out in the future, someday. She could be in grade school. She could be in junior high. It didn't matter. What mattered was the right arrangement with the right groom at the right time. And remember, Paul here is functioning as a representative father. That is, he is representing the real father who's God who sent his son and who made a pledge. Galatians 4.4, Paul wrote, When the fullness of the time came, God sent forth His Son, born of, a vir- born of a woman, born under the law. And so the only begotten Son came pledged to the bride by the Father. God made the pledge. Jesus even said in one of those famous arguments that He had with the Pharisees, He said to them, John 8.42, If God were your Father, you would love Me. For I proceeded forth and have come from God. I have not even come on my own, my own initiative, but He sent me. The Father made the pledge. Father pledged Son to the bride, making, by the way, watch this, the pledge with Himself. See, He's the Father of the bride. He is also the Father of the Son, isn't He? Well, doesn't that kind of break down the whole thing a little bit? No, it's perfect. Because if God, the Father of the Son, made the pledge with any other father, it could be broken. When a pledge was made, the pledge was not binding. It was just an agreement that some point down the line, the kids are going to grow up and they're going to get married and then we're, we're pledged to that. But the pledge could be broken. The father could say, you know, I've been watching your son and I don't think he's a good match for my daughter. So he could, he could pull out. No, no uh, love lost there. He can move back. You know, the, the daughter might grow up and say, Daddy, I don't love him. I, I don't want to be with him. And the father could, you know, he might be singing tradition, but he still could go the way his daughter wants him to go. She could bend his heart. And so they could end the pledge. God the Father sent the son to the daughter, the bride, making a pledge that is unbreakable. In Hebrews chapter 6, verses 6 through 18, uh, Paul describes that, I believe it's Paul, talks about that and, and explains that the Father makes an oath on himself, not on another. So when God makes a promise, it is absolute, it sticks, it stands. And he made that promise even while we were in kindergarten. You know, long before we were ready for some kind of marriage or even for a relationship at all. In fact, Paul says in Romans 5, 6, while we were still helpless at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. But note this again. Once the pledge has been made, it is now the father's responsibility, the dad's obligation to protect his daughter's purity until he hands her over to the groom. It is his responsibility To keep her virginity. Let's go practical just for a moment. Fathers, do you accept the same responsibility for your daughters today? Oh, Rick, don't put that on me. She has a mind of her own. I understand that. Are you intent, dads, of protecting your father's virginity, or your your daughters, can't protect your fathers, that's done. (laughs) Protecting your daughter's virginity. 
Dads, do you talk to your daughters about it? Do you show them the kind of love and affection at home that will make them not want to run to some idiot when she's a teenager? Some clown out there who's, oh, he's so dashing and so debonair and he's such a moron, you know, but she doesn't see that. And side note, fathers, that's one of the best things you can do. Cheryl taught me this throughout raising our kids. The best thing a father can do to protect the virginity of his daughter is give her love and affection in the home. So that she doesn't need to go find it somewhere else. So that she's not lacking it in her heart. If she knows when she comes in the door, daddy's got a hug waiting for her. If she knows that there is appropriate, tender love and affection coming from dad, then the handoff to a good man later is, is much, it's much more pure. So dads, just as an encouragement to you, we do have a responsibility. We do for all of our kids, our sons and our daughters as well, but protect her purity. And Paul says, Corinth, I betrothed you. I betrothed you to present you as a pure virgin. Now again, pure? I'm sorry, I know too much about Corinth to hear Paul calling Corinth a pure virgin. I mean, how's that working out for you, Paul? I betrothed you to be a pure virgin to Christ and look at the mess. And some of you feel that way. And sometimes I feel that way. As one who is supposed to be presented a pure virgin to Jesus, I don't feel so pure. I don't often look so pure. And you might ask the question, well then God the Father fail to keep me pure enough to be wed to His Son? Did He blow it as a dad? No. No, He didn't. As a matter of fact, He gave the Son to purify the bride. He made sure that you, that I would be pure at the time of the marriage. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 25 says, Christ loved the church and gave Himself up for her so that He might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the Word, that He might present to Himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. And note this, nowhere in that passage does Paul say, you keep yourself pure. He says, Jesus does that. Christ makes you holy. He makes you blameless. He's the one who by His blood sacrifice on the cross has cleansed you once and for all and by the way, continues to sanctify us to make us pure. So while the Father pledges the daughter to be married to the Son, He gives the Son to make the daughter pure and virginal at the time of the wedding. It's marvelous. This beautiful picture of the bride And at some point then in the marriage process, and we're still only on the pledge, the groom takes over the responsibility of protecting the purity of his bride. The pledge is followed by the formal betrothal. So part two of a three-part process is the betrothal. This is what's really different than our culture. We do not do betrothal. It is not engagement. When you read that in the scriptures, when you read about a spousal, it's not the same thing as engagement. It's actually very different. In fact, it's more different than courting even. And most people don't court in our culture today. Josiah did. Now that was weird. He came up to me and he, he said, uh, uh, Rick, I was uh, wondering if uh, I might court your daughter Hannah. I said, 
you want to court her? I'm sorry, she's just not that into basketball. Not sure what to tell you. He said, no, 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 I mean tennis. <laughs> no, he, courting. Courting is that process of a man and a woman getting to know each other without cohabitation, without the physical connection, but getting to know each other on an intellectual level, an emotional level. It's different than dating because it's not seeking to get what people seek to get out of dating. It's actually more mature than that. It's a man coming to a woman and saying, I would like to court you, that is, get to know you with the intent of if we feel good about each other and understand each other and seem to be on the same page, perhaps then we will marry. And that's the whole point. Dating is just its own thing that we've created in in 20th, 21st century America, and it's weird, man. And it doesn't work. In fact, I think dating is one of the biggest reasons why we have divorce in marriages today. But, but betrothal, what exactly does that mean? Based on the JewishEncyclopedia.com, when the agreement had been entered into, so the pledge is made, but then they come together, had an actual ceremony of betrothal, it was definite and binding upon both groom and bride who are now on considered man and wife. So they were a man and wife, husband and wife, in all legal, in all religious aspects, except... Cohabitation. So a, a man and a woman would become betrothed, they would be husband and wife, and for a year they would be betrothed, and they would be married in every single way, except they would not live together or consummate the marriage. That's the only thing that, was, that would wait a year. It was so significant, so actual, that to break it off required legal divorce. If you're betrothed and you want to get out of it, you've got to go through the process of divorce. So they took it that seriously, and this was the position of Mary and Joseph when suddenly it came known that she was pregnant. Turn over to Matthew chapter 1. Just go a few books to your left. Matthew chapter 1, verse 18. Joseph and Mary were in the midst of their betrothal. So the pledge was already agreed upon earlier, and now they had had the ceremony. They were husband and wife, but not sexually, not not consummating the marriage, not living together, but married, betrothed. Verse 18 says, Now the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, and by the way, if your translation says anything other than betrothed, it's wrong. Because it is betrothal that's being talked about. It's not engagement, it's betrothal. Or espousal, that would work too. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child by the Holy Spirit. Matthew is explicit. Now he in a moment is going to quote from Isaiah 7.14 that talks about that the virgin will be with child. But just so you know exactly what was meant by virgin in the prophecy and in the writing here by Matthew... They had not come together. There had been nothing sexual between Joseph and Mary at all. She was a virgin, but suddenly found herself to be with child. How? By the Holy Spirit. Verse 19. And Joseph, her husband, being a righteous man and not wanting to disgrace her, planned to send her away secretly, that is, to divorce her. I I like Joseph. You know, we really don't know much about him. But we sure do see a man of character, don't we? This is a guy who, he could have dragged her out into the public square, and in fact, by Jewish law, he could have had her stoned to death. 
And her father then would be shamed for the rest of his life because this daughter that he was supposed to present as a pure virgin was no longer virginal. And yet, what does Joseph do? He plans to send her away secretly. I can't marry her. He's a man of righteousness. I can't marry her in this condition. This is not my child. Something's happened here. But I'm not going to make a big deal of this. I'm going to divorce her and we'll just, we'll just kind of send her away. He honored her even in that. But, verse 20, when he had considered this, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for the child who has been conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Yeshua, for he will save his people from their sins. Yeshua from the Hebrew word Yesha, which means God saves. It's the, it's the old kind of common name Joshua, but it's God saves. That's the name you're going to give him. And verse 22, all this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall be with child and shall bear a son and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which translated means God with us. Let me point something else out to you right here. The word virgin, Parthenos in the Greek, means virgin. There is no other translation for it. And some have tried to argue against this going back to Isaiah 7.14 and saying, well, the word virgin in Isaiah 7.14 actually means maiden. So it's a maiden can be with child, so it doesn't have to be this virgin birth thing. Let me tell you something. The virgin birth of Christ is absolutely fundamental and critical to Christian faith. Without it, Christian doctrine falls. We teach and believe the virgin birth of Jesus. That it was a God thing by the Holy Spirit that she became pregnant and gave birth to Jesus who was both fully God and fully man. And it's so important to understand that word in the Hebrew virgin it can be translated maiden. But out of I think and don't quote me numbers on this but I think out of nine times that it's used eight times it refers to uh, a virgin and the ninth, ninth time it could go either way but the issue is this in Isaiah 7.14 it also says the Lord says I'm going to give you a sign a woman a virgin will be with child and if it was just a maiden that's not a sign because maidens have babies all the time right are you with me Young women can give birth, can get pregnant all the time. There's nothing significant, supernatural. There's no sign there. God says, I'm going to give you a sign. Something that you're going to see. Wow, this is, this is unique. And that is a virgin will be with child. And of course, when Matthew translates virgin in the Greek, he uses the word for virgin. So I wanted to be clear on that. They will call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. And Joseph awoke from his sleep and did as the angel of the Lord commanded him and took Mary as his wife. So guess what he did? At this point, he got married. So the betrothal becomes the marriage. But, good old Joseph, he kept her a virgin until she gave birth to a son and he called his name Yeshua. If you read the account of the birth of Jesus, which we are going to, I'm sure, very soon here, If you read the account of his birth in Luke chapter 2, you get more the story from Mary's perspective and what happened with Mary. You see the angel comes to Mary because she finds out. The angel tells her, you're going to be with child. And she says, how is this possible? I've never been with a man. 
And he says the Holy Spirit will come upon you. But what's interesting in the two stories of Joseph in Matthew 1 and Mary in Luke chapter 2, Joseph sees the angel in a dream. Mary sees the angel. Period. I mean, the angel shows up. Broad daylight and talks to Mary, but only appears to Joseph in a dream. Why is that? I believe it's because Joseph needed a little more faith. He didn't need proof. He needed faith. And the dream called out faith. Dreams will do that. They will. Dreams that are actually from the Lord will increase faith. And Joseph, as we see, came out of that dream and he did everything right. He kept her a virgin. He protected her purity until they were married. So betrothal was the position of Joseph and Mary, right? Betrothal is also our position as the church right now. We were pledged by the Lord. We are now betrothed, not yet married. That's our position. Isaiah 62 verse 5 says, As the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so your God will rejoice over you. We are yet the bride, not yet the wife. And yet we are considered by God to be bound to Christ in all legal and religious aspects except that of cohabitation. Jesus dwells within us spiritually. He is with us. But we have yet to experience cohabitation with Jesus on the level we will when we are home with Him. When we are gathered around the throne, when we are worshiping God and the Lamb, right there, in person, all of the physical, out of the way, no more an issue for us. And by the way, you husbands who refer to your wife as a bride, she's not your bride, she was a bride on the wedding day, but when you got married, she's your wife now. I get it, it's a term of endearment, but you're wrong. She is no longer your bride. She's your wife. And we, right now, are not the wife of Christ. We are the bride because we are in the position of betrothal. Now that understand, it is the divine intention of Jesus Christ, as we talked about, to keep you, to keep me, to keep us virginal, holy, blameless, and pure until, part three, the final marriage. Joel prophesied of it in chapter 2, verse 16. Gather the people, sanctify the congregation, assemble the elders, gather the children and the nursing infants, let the bridegroom come out of his room and the bride out of her chamber. What for? The marriage feast of the Lamb. And that is coming. And that is expected. That's what the bride, the church, is expecting. In this marvelous three-part marriage process, we have been pledged to Christ before the foundation of the world. We have been betrothed to Christ, which is where we are right now, but the consummation takes place at the rapture of the church. The harpazo in the Greek, the catching up. When we go home to be with the Lord, we will be caught up to the marriage feast of the Lamb, and all things will come together for the bride of Christ. We will no longer just be the bride. Revelation 19, verse 7, Let us rejoice and be glad and give glory to Him. For the marriage of the Lamb has come, and His bride has made herself ready. It was given to her to clothe herself in fine linen, bright and clean. For the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. And then He said to me, Write, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And so, like a bride waiting for her groom, will be a church ready for you. Every heart longing for our King. 
Can you say that this morning? When we sing that song, do you have that sense? Is your heart longing for your King? Are you among those who say, I want to be a church ready for you? Waiting for you, longing for you, prepared for you. By the way, that's why last week I made a point of talking about Wednesday night Bible study. I had a young man come up to me this morning and say, it was Joel, I'll just point him out. And say, Rick, I'm, I'm missing Wednesday night. You know, I miss it, I can't be here Wednesday night. And I'm like, well, yeah, shame on you. No, you know what? Joel's in a Bible study. He's leading a Bible study Wednesday night, which is why he can't be here Wednesday night. I'm like, praise the Lord. That's the point. The point is not geographical location or church attendance and checking the box. The question is, are you being prepared to be ready for Him when the bridegroom calls? Are you ready? And the thing that I know, and it's just, it's just true... I mean, a lifetime of being involved with church has taught me it is just true. Many, many Christians are not ready and they're not being prepared and they're not coming Wednesday night, but they're not getting it anywhere else either. They're just too busy. Cheryl and I have had a crazy month. Crazy. I mean, absolutely insane. Some of you know some of the things that have taken place. But, you know, my daughter has a baby in Wisconsin, so Cheryl's out there. And Thanksgiving, I'm trying to cook the mac and cheese, and we're trying to make it all work. And, and on top of that, the Nutcracker Ballet, which my daughters are in, and I am too. I'm not saying any more about it, but we're all doing this together. All right, I will tell you this much. I am Drosselmeyer. I'm Drosselmeyer. And that's all you need to know. And please, don't come. Anyway, um... <laughs> But we're all doing this, and David's in Taekwondo, and and man, the Crawford house is crazy. We have Valentine from Belgium staying with us, and it's just like, whoa, whoa, it's insane. And I said to Cheryl just a couple days ago, I said, honey, we need some margin. We need some margin in our life. Not margarine, that's bad butter. I'm Margin. We need some space. I mean, you and I know in American culture, what do we do? We, man, we line up every last second and we fill it. And the reason why I brought up Wednesday night last week and the reason I bring it up to you again right now is the one thing you can be assured of. If your life is hectic and crazy and out of control and you don't have time to sit down and be in the Word of God and be in prayer, if you're not in a group of people studying the Word together, I can promise you this, on Wednesday night from 6.30 to 8.30, you will have two hours of margin with the Lord. Where nothing else is going on. You've chosen it here this morning. And I pray that you are blessed because of it. That we are gathering together, not because we think it earns us grace points, but because we want to be a bride ready for you. Ready when Jesus comes. And what this does is there's a space. Hour and a half, two hours on a Sunday morning. Some think that's too long. There are other churches who do really short margin. That's fine. Actually, I don't think it is, but that's... Yeah. We have this space here to gather and to worship, to be in the Word together. And I want to encourage each and every one to avail yourself of margin time with the Lord of space in the schedule where you are doing nothing else but being with Him, listening to Him, learning about Him, worshiping Him. Why? So that we will be a bride ready when He comes. And there's more to this. 
Verse 3. So Paul says, But I am afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, your minds will be led astray from the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. How did the serpent deceive Eve? We see it happening today. The subtle threat to the betrothed believer. And by the way, Paul's talking to believers. Don't forget that. This is not a message to non-believers, although non-believers can benefit from it. So if you don't know Jesus right now, you can know Him through the writings of Paul and through the Scriptures. But Paul is talking specifically to those who are betrothed, and he says, I am concerned that you may be deceived like Eve was deceived, and it is always the same thing. The devil comes in and deceives us spiritually. How did the serpent deceive Eve? We've been over this. Genesis 3 verse 5, he said, God knows that in the day you eat from the fruit, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. It was a spiritual offer. You can be more spiritual, more like God, said the serpent. You can know good and evil, know things you don't know, said the devil. And you know what? He was only preaching a slightly different message. He was only off by a little bit. But Alfred Lord Tennyson once said, A lie that is all of a lie can be met with and fought outright. But a lie that is partly the truth is a harder matter to fight. So the serpent came along and with partial truth, hey, Eve's eyes were open, weren't they? Your eyes will be open. He was telling the truth. And you will be like God. That's a lie. Because rather than become righteous like God, Eve's eyes were open and she lost her innocence. And the first sin was committed. Sin entered the world with Adam's choice. And so what we see in the deception of Eve is a spiritual deception. And the spirit of, of evil, the spirit of the enemy, and demonic spirits are working as hard today in the church. Among believers to deceive as I have ever seen him work in my lifetime. Maybe it's just my vantage point, but I see believers getting drawn off. And I understand why Paul was so worried. I understand why he was so concerned. In verse 4 he said, For if one comes and preaches another Jesus whom we have not preached, or you receive a different spirit which you have not received, or a different gospel which you have not accepted, you bear this beautifully. Remember what he said at the beginning? Bear with me. He says, I I wish that you would bear with me in a little foolishness. Please, bear with me, he says, knowing they're rolling their eyes at him. But someone comes along with another Jesus. A different gospel. A different spirit. And Corinth is just welcoming them in. Not just putting up with them, but bearing with them beautifully. Oh yeah, oh we want to hear. Ooh, that's a neat message. Oh, I like what I'm hearing. They put up with Paul while they were beautifully bearing with charlatans. The old serpent's most crafty deception of the church in the first century, and I would warn of the church in 21st century America, is another Jesus, a different spirit, and a different gospel. Look at those three things in reverse. A different gospel. 
a different gospel. They were buying into a teaching that was different, that had not come from Paul, and it was not the pure and simple gospel that had been taught. They were buying into a different one, and probably it was a Judaizing gospel. A Torah-keeping word coming out of Judea. Further down, Paul makes a hint at this, and we know from the whole letter, probably what he's dealing with is Jewish believers in Jesus coming into Corinth and now telling them, that's fine that you know Jesus, that's good, but you also have to keep the law. You all have to get circumcised and not only baptized, which was bad news to the Greeks. <laughs> you have to do these other things. You have to keep these feasts and these festivals and these rules and, and Torah. You've got to keep it all. And you remember Paul's, man, Paul beat the drum of grace all across Galatia and Asia. And on into Greece. Grace, grace, grace is the message of the gospel. But the Judaizers are coming in and they are lying about it. And look down at verse 22. He addresses them. He says, are they Hebrews? Well, so am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they descendants of Abraham? So am I. Hebrews, Israelites, seed of Abraham. But now these these false teachers are seeding Corinth with law-based spirituality. You ever see that in the church? Well, Rick, you just told us we have to be there on Wednesday night. No, I didn't. No, I did not. And I hope you didn't hear that. I told you it's available to you. It is offered for you. And if you choose not to come, and you sit home on a Wednesday night and go, Oh, Rick said that, I feel so guilty. Then you miss my offer. It's not about guilt. Because you cannot do anything to present yourself a pure and spotless bride. It's been done for you. There is freedom in Christ Jesus. But this different gospel comes along and says, in a complex, convoluted, works-based Christianity, grace is not enough. Grace is enough. Brothers and sisters, grace is all we've got. You will not buy yourself into heaven with any amount of good work. It is the grace of God that saves us. There were two doctrines, two falsely spiritual doctrines going on in the first century that that were the two big ones. I'm sure there were little ones and heresies going on here and there that that infected and, and affected the church. But on the extreme, there was what was called Gnosticism and there was Judaizing. The Gnostics were all spiritual. Everything spiritual was all about the mystical. That was their thing. They had the gnosis, this deeper knowledge, this what, what the Bible calls the bathos or the deep things of, of, of Satan, really. And it was a heresy, and the Apostle John really deals with Gnosticism in his letters. But on the other extreme were the Judaizers, the religious stuffed shirts, the guys coming in saying, you've got to keep the law. You've got to be religious. You have to purify yourself. You must do all of these things. And so Paul has already been fighting this. In the letter to the church of Galatia, or the churches in Galatia, which is the next letter over, it's the one we'll get to January 1st. In Galatians chapter 1, verse 6, listen to this. He says, I am amazed that you are so quickly deserting Him who called you by the grace of Christ for a different gospel. What's the different gospel? You know what? It really doesn't matter. It's anything other than the grace of Christ. Anything that teaches law or religious organization other than or instead of grace. He says, I'm amazed. You're, You're... Deserting Him who called you by the grace of Christ for a different gospel, which is really not another. 
Only there are some who are disturbing you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. And then he says this, and some of you have heard this famously, but even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to what we have preached to you, he is to be accursed. Anathema is the word. As we have said before, so I say again now, if any man is preaching to you a gospel contrary to what you received, he is to be accursed. And that's not because Paul feels threatened in his message. It's because if someone comes along preaching anything other than grace, you will get drawn away. You'll trample on grace. You won't understand grace and, and, and its, its power to change a life. These are strong words that he wrote to Galatia. He wrote Galatians before First and Second Corinthians, we're pretty sure. In fact, it may have been, along with First and Second Thessalonians, one of the earliest letters of Paul. And he wrote because this he came into Galatia and those churches preaching grace, and then all of a sudden out of Judea came the Judaizers. Came saying, hey, that's great again. You know, Jesus, you need to be circumcised. You need to do this. You need to do that. And Paul said, uh-uh. That's a distortion of the gospel of grace. Why is it a distortion? Because this different, this different gospel exposes a different spirit. Different spirit? 1 Samuel 15.29 says, The glory of Israel will not lie or change his mind. He is not a man that he should change his mind. Speaking of God. And God is incapable of contradiction. All biblical teaching is therefore in concert with His Spirit. His Spirit. There's only one Spirit. There are many demonic spirits, there are angelic spirits, but there is only one Spirit of God, Spirit of Christ. Just the one. But Paul says you're being deceived by a different gospel and a different spirit. And Christians, even today, keep getting deceived, like Eve, to something something more. It's the experiential. And it's dangerous, folks. I'm not saying you can't experience Jesus more. But you need the Spirit of the living God. Once you have the Holy Spirit, He is everything. He's, he's all. And we don't need or look for or desire or chase after something more. And it's chasing the something more that leads people into legalistic, cultish religion. Like that of Mormonism. Which is all based on the angel Moroni coming down and talking to Joseph Smith. And Paul says, even if an angel from heaven preaches a different gospel, he is anathema. He is to be accursed. What about the Spirit of the Lord? Don't worry about trying to understand or even discern what do other spirits look like. Just look at the Spirit of the Lord. Isaiah prophesied. Jesus spoke these words. Isaiah 61.1 The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me. Oh good, then we get to see Him at work. Right? What does He do? He has anointed me to bring good news to the afflicted. Is legalistic religion good news for the afflicted? Hey, come to church and we got a whole litany of things you have to do to make yourself right. Oh, that just sounds exhausting. Because I know how much right I need. <laughs> Why would I want that? He says, no, I, I'm anointed by the Spirit to bring good news to the afflicted. He sent me to bind up, to bandage the brokenhearted, not to wound them more. 
to proclaim liberty to captives, freedom to prisoners, the favorable year of the Lord. And Paul told us in 2 Corinthians 3.17, where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. See, that comes with grace. Anything else is a different spirit. Where the Spirit of God is, there is liberty. There is freedom in Christ Jesus. But the other spirit, oh, they come on their bicycles. Their black pants and white shirts with their other gospel. With their additional writings. Different gospel, different spirit. And it's not just Mormonism. All the cults, all the cults do two things. Anything that is a cult falls into this category. This is what primarily they do. Number one, they diminish Jesus. And number two, they diminish grace. They diminish Jesus. He's not really God. He's a son of God. In Mormonism, Jesus is the brother of Lucifer. Both sons, lower beings than God, the Elohim of Mormonism. And they had a big argument over which way they should go with teaching the truth, and Lucifer lost, so Jesus got to bring it, and Lucifer got kind of mad. And it gets really weird after that. Let me tell you something. Lucifer is a created being. Jesus is not. Jesus is God. Always has been, always will be. Who was, who is, and who is to come. That's Jesus. And he's not a parallel being with Lucifer. But the cults, they will diminish Jesus and they will diminish grace. Well, grace is good in all that, but you need to do this or you need to do that. And it's not right. Second John chapter, uh, actually verse 10, because there's just one chapter. Second John verse 10, listen to how serious John was with all this. He said, if anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, and he's been talking about the deity of Jesus, that Jesus is God, anyone comes to you and doesn't bring this teaching, do not receive him into your house and do not give him a greeting. For the one who gives him a greeting participates in his evil deeds. We need to understand that when you invite the cult into your home, you're not just inviting a man or a woman or someone deceived, you're inviting a spirit. There is a spirit attached to it, a different spirit than the Holy Spirit of the living God. Now, I'm not saying there aren't those who are anointed and called to preach to Mormons when they come to the door. Or to preach to Jehovah's Witness, or to preach to some other cultic group that might show up at your house. Some are prepared, studied, and ready to do that, but even those need to understand that they are dealing with a different spirit. And the way you take down a different spirit is in the name of Jesus Christ. So you need to be clear about that. And if you're not certain about these things, don't invite it in. You're inviting a different spirit into your house. A different gospel brings a different spirit, which is a deceiving spirit, even bringing another Jesus. Another Jesus. Hey, in Paul's day, there were lots of Yeshua's. You know that. Yehoshua, Joshua, Jesus. It was a very common name in the first century and and in Judaism. So there were Jesuses running around all over the place, but there was only one Christ. Only one Christ. And it's interesting because even in his language... He uses the word Christ. He says, look back at verse 2, I betrothed you to one husband so that to Christ 
I might present you as a pure virgin. And then down in verse 3, he said that you would not be led away from the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. But if someone comes and preaches another Jesus, well, there were all kinds of other Jesuses. But there's only one Christ. You can only preach the truth of the one Christ. And anyone who tries to preach a Christ who is different than the gospel of grace, that's not Christ. That's just another Jesus. You understand what I'm saying? That's a different individual altogether. By the way, there's another way to say another Christ in the Greek, and it is antichristos. Antichrist. Antichrist. We, we hear the name Antichrist, and immediately we think of a guy who's going to run around with a little t-shirt and little horns, tail. My name is Antichrist, you know, hello, my name is Antichrist. Antichrist is a spirit, not just the individual who will rise up. The individual who rise you know what the Bible teaches? Antichrist has been present in every generation. That spirit, that very real spirit is running around. And it has to be that way. Why would Satan have Antichrist present in every generation? Because Satan has no idea which generation is going to be the last one. So he's got to be ready. That Antichrist spirit, I believe, filled Nero. I believe that Antichrist spirit filled Hitler. That Antichrist spirit would, going further back, fill Haman, who tried to take out the Jews. We've seen this spirit crop up many different times in many different people. And John writes in 1 John 2.18, Children, it is the last hour. And just as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, and he is, even now many Antichrists have appeared. And from this we know that it is the last hour. That spirit's in the world. 1 John 2.22, John writes, Who is the liar but the one who denies that Jesus is the Christ? Only one Christ. And that Christ is Yeshua. Born of Mary and Joseph by the Holy Spirit. Joseph, not his actual father, you know. Who is the liar? But the one who denies that Jesus is the Christ. This is the Antichrist, the one who denies the Father and the Son. Why? Because again, there is only one Christ. One way, one truth, one life. And Isaiah talked about it. Isaiah 9.6 For a child will be born to us. A son will be given to us. And the government will rest on his shoulders. His name will be called Wonderful. Counselor. Mighty God. Eternal Father. Prince of Peace. And in 1 John 5.20 he says, We know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know Him who is true. And we are in Him who is true, in His Son, Jesus Christ. This is true God and eternal life. And He is our betrothed. The one Christ. There is not another who can save you. Neither is there a different gospel or a different teaching. So all that being the case, how do we remain virginal until the wedding? What is our part in this? How do we avoid the deception of another Jesus? Of another spirit that is out there, a different spirit? How do we avoid the deception and the lie of a different gospel? I tell you, as a pastor, I watch these things. I see Christians chasing down another spirit all the time. Now, sometimes it's an obvious blatant spirit, you know. Rhymes with 
can't even think of one that rhymes with NFL, but that, we'll just let that go. Um, there's all kinds of other things that draw us away, but when we're talking about another spirit, we're talking about something that will draw you away religiously, spiritually, faith-wise. Draw you into some aspect of, of Christianity that is pulling you away from the one Christ. And I do see this happen a lot. And you do as well. How do we remain virginal? You know, knowing that we are filled with the the Holy Spirit of the living God, the Spirit of Christ Himself, that we are receiving the one true gospel. How do we do it? What's our part? Paul's already told us. Look at the end of verse 3. It is in simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. Simple, pure devotion. Now I want to end on this because it is vital to understand there is one little word in this verse that makes all the difference in understanding it. One little word and the word is ice. Ice. It's spelled E-I-S in the Greek. If you note at the end of the verse it says the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. The word ice is that word to. And it is so important that we get that word right. Devotion, of devotion, that's added by the translators, and there's a reason for it. They are right to add it. It is a good addition to help understand what the word to is really all about. Because the Greek word ice literally is to, unto, or toward. That is simplicity and purity unto Christ. Toward Christ. Okay, so what's the big deal? The big deal is this has been preached and taught as the simplicity that is in Christ. In fact, that's the reading in the King James translation, and it's one of the places the King James kind of veers off. The simplicity that is in Christ, or the simplicity of Christ, may I ask you a question, is Christ simple? Pure, absolutely. But is Jesus simple? Is the Christ Jesus that we have come to know and love and understand in the Scriptures simple? Not even close. Try to plumb the depths of God. He's unfathomable. Jesus Christ is unfathomable in power, in glory, in love, yes, and in authority. Paul is not saying this is all about simple Jesus. That simpleton from Nazareth. That country bumpkin from the north. From the Galilee. See, that's what the Pharisees thought. At least that's what they tried to tell themselves. That's what the people thought until they heard him teach and they went, Whoa, where is this simple Nazarene getting these words of wisdom? You see, there was nothing simple about Jesus. The simplicity is on our part. Look around, we are all pretty simple. Well, I'm not, I'm very well learned. Yeah, which makes you even more simple than you know, bro. Paul said in Romans 11.33, Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and the knowledge of God, how unsearchable are His judgments and unfathomable His ways. And, And so while it's true of us that absolute power corrupts absolutely and great men are always, almost always bad men, that is not true of the one who has been given all authority in heaven and on earth, that is Jesus Christ. He is not simple. The simplicity, get this, the simplicity and the purity spoken of here is ours to Him. 
It is our simple devotion to Him. It is our pure devotion to Him. It is our love for Him. It is the bride's love for the groom. The betrothed to the beloved. Paul is describing devotion to Christ pure and simple. And for that part, it is pure and simple. For you, for me, to be devoted to Christ is not difficult. This is not a hard thing. While He is beyond all comprehension, while He is marvelous, yet I can approach Him in my simplicity and the youngest child loves Jesus. The youngest of children can sing, Jesus loves me. This I know for the Bible tells me so. Simple! And the most learned scholar can just simply love Jesus as well. That's our part. That's the daughter's part. That's the part of the bride. He showed up on the eve of our wedding. Now, I think I've told this story before, but I want to give you a a part of it that I haven't shared. Showed up on the eve of our wedding at the church. We're all gathered there for the rehearsal. We're laughing and joyful and having a great time. Cheryl's there. I'm there. My groomsmen, her bridesmaids, we're all there. And the corner door by the front opened And there he stood, tears running down his face. A young man smitten with my bride. True story. And he stood up there. He beckoned for her to come and talk to him. And she looked at me and I'm like, go talk to him. Poor sap. (laughs) She goes over there. She's standing there, you know. she's, She's talking and... And he is just begging her not to marry me, but to give him the chance to win her heart. (laughs) And one of my groomsmen was standing there beside me going, You need us to take care of this? You worried about this, Rick? And I said, Nah. No, it's alright. Why? Because I knew her devotion. I knew the devotion of the bride. And no question about where Cheryl's heart was. That is how to be found pure at the marriage feast of the Lamb. Just be devoted, simple, and pure. Devoted to Jesus Christ.